this Sunday is the last Sunday in uh, uh, August, and uh, it's also the last time, likely for a while, that you'll hear me say, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John. This is the uh, conclusion of this uh, massive study in this great gospel, and uh, this morning it's my goal to just provide uh, a conclusion and, uh, <clears throat> and just a bit of a summary. So if you're worshiping with us for the first time, first of all, welcome, and uh, secondly, you're going to get a bird's eye view of the Gospel of John. Chapter 21 would be where I invite you to turn. I'm thankful for the technology we have and the diligence of our church office to uh, maintain the, the announcements and all the other things, but also a massive list of sermons and studies that have been done in the church by others who have preached. And so um, you have somewhat of a library now of this gospel. Uh, and uh, what I'm also thankful for is that, the, that Tony or some other capable person hasn't highlighted all the bloopers. It seems that the last few Sundays have been uh, filled with a few bloopers. Not to mention a couple weeks ago when I accredited the disciples with three times more sheep, uh, sheep, here I am, uh, three times more fish. Go ahead, laugh. My wife laughs at me. Now Jim has people catching sheep in the lake. Anyway, I kept saying 351 instead of 153 or something like that. And then last Sunday, I had uh, the cock or the rooster crowing three times uh, rather than Peter denying Jesus three times. So uh, have a good laugh at your pastor. It's, uh, I, I don't really mind, and uh, there will probably be hundreds of other bloopers through the last 87 sermons in this topic of John. But uh, there is also some breadcrumbs that will feed your soul, and it's for that that I pray. My dad, you know I'm a son of a preacher, and my dad used to say of some preachers that they were like bush pilots. <clears throat> constantly circling around looking for a place to land. And, uh, and then he went on to say that, you know, the aircraft would come in. It looks like it's coming into the airfield, air and then suddenly throttle up and they'd take off again, and they try to land again. What he meant was what some of you have said to me. Uh, I'm amazed at how many times you can say, and for, and for conclusion I will say, well, to you who have lovingly and kindly prodded me about this fact that I say finally several times, today is my defense. 
today, and I didn't know it was here, but it, I, I, I feel somewhat vindicated because John actually concludes the Gospel of John three times. And so that will be my ongoing defense from now on when you say to me, Jim, you said finally more than once. I'll say, well, go to the Gospel of John. He's an inspired writer, and he got away with it. In fact, we're going to be looking at the second and third conclusion of John. And then I have in my notes somewhere near the end, <clears throat> and finally, finally, finally. When you hear that, you know we're done. <clears throat> so with all that, you should be at John's Gospel, chapter 21. And I'm reading verses <clears throat> 20 to 24. <clears throat> it's 24 and 20, or 20, uh, I'm reading 24 to 25. I got on the, the blooper thing, I'm continuing it. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The second ending that John adds to this gospel is his signature, so to speak. Verse 24, <clears throat> this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. To bring everyone onto the same page, John is compiling a selected biography of Jesus to present towards second-generation Jews that are scattered around Asia Minor and he's presenting them a body of evidence that Jesus is the Christ. That's what he's presenting to them. And now he's signing this document, so to speak, with his own hand. This is the disciple bearing witness about these things who has written these things. A careful study of the previous verses will make the connection between that statement and another phrase we run into over and over again where the author is speaking of himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so you might wonder how a person can prove that John wrote this gospel. Well, the same disciple that signed his name is the same disciple whom Jesus loved. And if you were to do the work through the entire gospel, you will find that John tenaciously refuses to say his name. When Peter and another disciple named, called the disciple whom Jesus loved ran to the tomb, this is the kind of phraseology we get here that John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And the question is, how do you know it was John? 
Well, you, what you simply do is read the Gospel of John, and you will find every single disciple of Jesus mentioned except John. Not once do you find the name John in reference to himself. So by a strong inference, we conclude that it is the Apostle John who wrote this uh, gospel, this uh, selected biography. And when he puts his authenticity on this writing by saying, verse 24, this is, a, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, you'll notice that he says in the last clause, and we know that his testimony is true. You might want to ask yourself the question, who's the we? And we know that his testimony is true. What is, who is the we? You know that it's common in our everyday life to use what we call the royal we. I never think of the royal we without thinking of Dave Wilkinson, who was part of our church so many years. Dave had a number of tasks for us to do, and he would say, come, we, we are going to do this. And one of, one of the wonderful things that Dave did in our church, I know that Noni listens sometimes to our online service, and I hope she's blessed by this memory. But one of the wonderful things that Dave used to organize in our church is making sure these pews were lined up. Everything lined up. He was particular about that. And he'd grab a couple of guys and say, come on in here, we're going to line up the pews. Well, Dave never lifted a finger in his life. So he was using the royal we. Margaret Modine told me once that the previous pastor, John McGregor, always used the word we. We are going to pray. We are going to preach. We are going to. And one time Margaret asked John, said, John, you always say we. Who, who, who do you have in mind? Well, this is serious and, and a good thought. John said, well, I never do anything without the aid and the accompaniment of the Lord Jesus Christ. So everything I do is we. Who is this we? Who is the we that is bearing testimony that this gospel is true? Well, I would submit to you it's the same we that is in our theme verse, John 1.14. We have beheld his glory. We have received grace. And now John concludes the gospel by saying, we bear testimony that this is true. I believe John is referring to the whole community of believers at that time. At the time of his writing, at the time when he wrote this, there was an entire community of believers that were giving evidence to the fact that this gospel is true. Now, try to just pull back a, a few thousand years into this time where you're writing a document to give evidence 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And part of the structure of the evidence, the, the, the laying out of the evidence before the reader is not only the content of all this, but the author himself is saying this is true, and he's saying that not only do I say it's true, the community of people around me say it's true. The church said it's true. That means the church had understanding of what was going on here. The church itself was, was perhaps, and I'm really speculating here, but perhaps the church itself, the believers that John knew, were also around him as he was writing this, and it, they had that same burden that other people who read this would come to the reality that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ and the Son of God. And so John concludes his gospel by saying, I put my signature on this as being true. And not only that, we also, we the believers, we who have beheld his glory, we who have received faith, uh, grace, we say it's true. And thus he tables his document for the reader then to evaluate. And then the third conclusion is found in verse 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that were written. This is John's last, last, last word, pointing to the greatness and the infinite magnitude of Jesus Christ and what he did. You'll notice that he doesn't just paint an image to say, I couldn't write everything Jesus said and did. He didn't say that. He painted to an image that all the books contained in the world and all the books that could be produced could not contain the magnitude and the glory and the majesty and the greatness of Jesus Christ. Let's think of that for a second. An individual shows up on planet Earth in Palestine 2,000 years ago who is so infinitely great that the inspired author John says there could never be enough books written about him or knowledge that could, could be contained. That even as the years go by, the millennia, go by, you could not possibly exhaust knowledge of the greatness and the wonder and the magnitude of Jesus Christ. And so as we've said on numbers of occasions, a young child could put, pick up the gospel of John. A young child could pick up the gospel of John and come to the knowledge that Jesus is the Savior of the world 
and that if you believe in him, you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. A child could understand the gospel of John, and yet on another level, all eternity could not exhaust the knowledge that's in the person uh, about Jesus Christ, our Savior. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, I say that to me, that this ought not to be the last time I look at the Gospel of John. Because there's more to be learned. There's more to be gleaned. There's more to be filled. Some of you may have thought that 87 sermons ago when I started and said, oh my goodness, the Gospel of John again? How many more times? Well, now you know. You can keep doing this infinitely and you'll never exhaust the greatness and the glory of Jesus. And we pass from this earth and we move into, into the presence of Christ. Those who have trusted Christ as Savior, when we pass from this earth, eternity cannot exhaust the greatness. Even in eternity, angels will be constantly looking into and trying to understand the grace of God. No single book could ever capture the reality and the power and the majesty and the glory of the Son of God. I'd love to camp there. I'd love to just let that thought, be, become John's thought, impress you with who we're talking about. Men come and go. World leaders come and go. Religious leaders come and go, but nobody, nobody can completely exhaust the person and the work of Christ in time. It is an eternal pursuit. So this is where I come to the first of many of my conclusions. John has set out to prove but one thing. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. John designed his gospel with a prologue, chapter 1, and also an end note, chapter 21. In chapter 1, in the prologue, John established the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the creator of the world. If you're a Christian and you're listening to this, in which many of you are, just don't lose the profundity of that. Jesus of Nazareth is the creator of the world. He was with God. He was God. All things were made by him. Nothing that was made was made by any other source than Jesus Christ. He establishes right at the beginning of his case. Picture John perhaps in a courtroom and, and presenting his case to the jury and saying, first of all, Jesus of Nazareth is God creator. He's the creator. Secondly, he's the tabernacle. 
He's the true tabernacle. He's the true temple. Jesus is the place where men and women can meet God. You cannot meet God any other place other than through Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is the tabernacle. If if John was a lawyer, what a profound thing to start the case with. Jesus of Nazareth is the creator, and he is the tabernacle. This is where you meet God. Then he structured the rest of the chapters, and he gave seven signs, all pointing to the fact proving the fact that Jesus is God. He started the first sign at John, but the seventh sign, the rest we have to just count up ourselves, but the seventh sign, the last sign that John gives that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is the resurrection of Jesus. So get into the mind of John. I'm presenting a case that Jesus is the Christ. I established my affirmations. He's God and he's the temple. He's the tabernacle. How am I going to prove it? I'm going to show people from the history of Jesus seven significant events that point to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, concluding with the most monumental one, the resurrection of Jesus. And why is that monumental? Because Jesus said that No one could kill him, and no one could raise him from the dead. He said, I give up my life, and I will raise it again. And three days later, he did. It's an event never to be repeated in society. And then John established three statements of, or seven statements of Jesus through all those chapters. So we have the seven signs pointing to Jesus, and then seven times Jesus says before a crowd or a group of people, he uses the term, I am. In Greek, egomani, I am. Imagine this. Imagine being in the audience when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. We know where you were born, Jesus. You were born in Bethlehem. You were born under the reign of Herod. We know all about that. Jesus, no. Before Abraham was, I am. I am. Again, Jesus' self-disclosure that he is God. I am. I always am. I'm the eternal God. I never change. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he finally said, I am the true vine. All having important uh, significance to those Jews who would have been reading this. Every time that John said that Jesus did something that pointed to his divinity or said something that pointed to his divinity, John recorded the response of the crowd. 
just like a good reporter would today, a good journalist. And he, would, he, he, he reported how the crowd responded. And he reported whether they believed or they didn't believe. And he reported the arguments that took place amongst those seven signs and seven statements, I am. And John's intent to present the case this way was continually pointing to the question, do you believe? Do you believe this? It was to provoke a response. Do you believe? He wasn't writing this just to establish a historical document. He was writing this to present a case so that the reader, upon reading this, would be brought to a verdict. Do you believe? Merle C. Tenney, who was a theologian in the early 20th century and a New Testament scholar, wrote a book, a book that my dear wife has from Bible school, on a commentary on John, and the title is brilliant. Tenney entitled his commentary, The Gospel of Belief. Why does he do that? Because in the ESV, in my translation, I counted nearly 100 times the word belief occurs in the Gospel of John. John is concerned about what people do with his evidence. He's concerned about whether they believe or not. And John is so concerned about this that sometimes he records what proves to be a false belief. We call it a spurious belief. He records evidences where people said, I'm a disciple of Jesus, but then they quit following him. Or I believe but they wandered away. He also records true belief. If you're here this morning and you've ever wondered what true belief looks like, may I commend to you the Gospel of John. Many people say they believe. It's the most common statement, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. So let's be personal this morning. I'm not trying to be mean, but let's you and I be personal this morning because John identifies at least four evidences for true belief. And you ask yourself the question, this isn't me pushing you. You ask yourself, and does this describe me? True belief trusts Christ in the darkest hours. John records an event that took place where his friend Lazarus died. And he records the belief of Lazarus' sister, Mary. And Mary's heart was broken that her brother died. But when Jesus came to her, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And she said, I know 
that you will raise my brother on the last day. True belief trusts Christ. Secondly, true belief seeks to live in accordance with the Bible. Jesus said in John 14, if you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Men and women, let's not play games with God. Please don't play games with God. Is your heart inclination to live your life in accordance with this, this book, this Bible, the Word of Jesus? If you say you love God and love Christ, do you seek to obey Him? John makes belief very clear. True belief is found in those who trust Christ. True belief is found in those who seek to obey the Word of God. Thirdly, in John 15, Jesus describes that true belief draws its nourishment from Christ. He uses the picture of a vine and branches. He said, true belief draws its nourishment from Christ. True belief says, when I am spiritually hungry, when I'm lost, when I'm confused, when I need direction in my life, when I need hope, I go to Christ and I draw the strength from Christ because I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. Jesus says, if you don't live that way, then you will die as a branch will die, and you'll be thrown away, and you'll be burned in the garbage. This is really serious stuff. Do you and I live our lives drawing our nourishment, our sustenance? Could we say with Paul this morning, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Finally, John says in John 13, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you love the church? Is your heart inclination just to love God's people? Do you love to be with God's people? Do you love to fellowship with God's people? To put it more in relevant contemporary terms, when we were living in those days, and may they never come back, in those days of restricted attendance and things like that, was your heart breaking? Were you saying, I can't take this. I've got to be with other Christians to help build me up and strengthen and encourage me. Yes, in the evidence that John presents, he clearly identifies what is false faith, spurious faith, and what is true faith.
And if you're here this morning and somehow you've identified the fact that it's possible you do not have true faith, I have hope for you this morning. I have a solution for you this morning. Don't turn me off. At the end of the day, after two years of the Gospel of John, if you ask me, well, how do you, would you summarize it? And I would say I would summarize it in three verses. And to you who love Christ, I would encourage you to memorize these three verses. The first verse is John 20, 31, where John says, These things are written that you might believe. Interesting note here. In John's letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, First John, he says, these things are written that you may know. <laughs> he presupposes belief. But in this book, he says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. And then I would take you to another verse that you're familiar with, John 10, 10, where Jesus says, the thief is come, and there's a little word in there that you should never forget when you memorize this verse. The thief is come only to kill, steal, and destroy. Satan has one agenda in your life, only. <laughs> Don't miss that little word, only. I know I'm a Reformed preacher, and I love the little word, only, from the Reformation, but I love it here, too. Jesus says, the thief has come only. The only purpose of Satan is to kill, steal, and destroy. But you know the rest of the verse, don't you? But I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. These things are written that you may know, that you may believe. I have come that you might have life. And then the most famous verse of all in the Gospel of John, famous verse of all, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's the Gospel of John in a nutshell. That's it in a nutshell. Jesus of Nazareth is affirmed by John as the Christ, the Son of God. He's like none other. When you see Jesus in the Gospel of John as he lived his life on earth, he is the personification of the Father. He is not the Father. Don't get me wrong. But the Father, in the mystery of the Trinity, is lived through Jesus. 
When you see me, you've seen the Father, he said. He is the Father personified as the second person of the Trinity. God was actually on earth. God was on earth. Because Jesus is God, that means his work and his words are true. Because he is God, that means his salvation is certain. So the verdict required after reading the Gospel of John, studying it, and coming to this conclusion, the verdict is, do you believe that Jesus is the Lord? If you believe that Jesus is the Lord, it will radically change your life. Paul said that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Please do not buy into the lie that you can believe in Jesus and then your life goes on as untouched. It's impossible. If you believe that Jesus is the Lord, your life is radically changed. If you choose not to believe, your life will be radically changed. You will perish. You will perish. So this is my last, 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 last word. The choice is yours. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? You do? You'll have eternal life. You don't? You'll perish. If you feel that your soul is in danger this morning, The third verse that I suggested you memorize is the hope that you need to hear. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. Will you believe that this morning? Will you put your trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior? Please pray with me. Thank you for your word. It is inspired. It is without error. It is authoritative. Thank you that in the dimensions of eternity you chose to inspire John the Apostle 
to write this record for us. Father, we're now at a place where those listening in this auditorium and those who have joined us online, we're now at a place of no excuse. We clearly know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Would you be pleased, Father, to mercifully and grace, gracefully work in our hearts so that if anyone here today is not trusting you, not obeying you, not following you, not drawing strength from you, not loving you, that can change in an instant. May they call upon you and be saved. Father, for those of us who are in Christ, with the audience of John at the time of his writing, we now can say we have beheld his glory. Oh, we haven't seen it all. We've only seen a fraction. We've only seen a small part but we have truly seen your glory, the glory of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. And it's you, Jesus, whom we delight in. It's you, Jesus, whom we treasure. It's you, Jesus, to whom we come to and cling to. And now, Lord, I commend these, your people, to you. And I commend them to the word of your grace, the Bible, the scriptures, the gospel, which is able to build them up and give to them an eternal inheritance with all others who have also been sanctified. And this we pray in the precious name of our Savior. And God's people said, Amen.